You know, I, I know from my own personal recovery experience, like I really struggled with relapse for a period of time. And the mm -hmm. issue is that I would get, I would get one bad thought and I couldn't get it out of there and drugs and alcohol were easily available to right. me. And that was it. Um, and I think something that I think um, maybe, uh, you know, people don't necessarily give enough credit to when they're looking at residential treatment is you get to spend 36 or 90 days without the temptation of alcohol and drugs. And it right. seems so basic, but we can't underscore how important that is Absolutely. because there are well-meaning people out there who spend 45 days doing fantastically. And on the 46th day, they get a bad idea that they just can't shake. They're not in a healthy environment and they can end up doing some real damage, you know? Absolutely. Um, uh, we've learned so much, uh, about the treatment of addiction and, and I think one of the things that I, I really love about um, working with, with professionals like yourself is just that we really believe that people deserve the best level of care possible for Absolutely. themselves. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today at uh, New Waters Recovery. Uh, my name is Justin McClendon. I'm the executive director here at New Waters Recovery. Um, I'm also a duly licensed therapist, uh, specialized in substance substance use counseling, and then also in mental health counseling as well. And I am joined by Ryan Gerald, who is our continuing care coordinator. And uh, Ryan, we thank you for being on the show today, man. Absolutely. Thank you so much um, for having me, Justin. I really enjoy the fact that we're able to have these kind of conversations and provide education um, because it's such a befuddling kind of world to anyone who's an outsider, you know? Absolutely. Completely agree. So today we're going to be focusing on uh, the levels of care and addiction treatment. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about the that continuum of care and how that that those level of levels of care can kind of flow and how they're intended to work. Um so Ryan, so maybe we could start off with just identifying what those levels of care are. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and again, like I really can't stress how difficult this can be to the outsider family who maybe hasn't had substance use or maybe never had treated substance use uh, mm -hmm. in their family before. And we're battling against like Hollywood's depiction of what the levels of care are, right? Absolutely. Which is usually like a cut scene of like a sunny room where someone's doing yoga and then someone <laughs> sitting in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting that doesn't resemble any Alcoholics Anonymous meeting that anyone's ever been in. <laughs> right. Um, so how we kind of like battle that image is by trying to provide these kind of, uh, this kind of education. Uh, there are different levels of care and a lot of times they're defined um, partially by insurance companies, partially by best practice, by clinical visions of institutions. Um, you know, addiction treatment has had a really interesting development. And I think like the evolution is very inherent in, in how it presents today. Um, I'd like to go kind of sequentially through these levels of care from highest level of care with the highest level of medical, medical acuity all the way down. And the sure. first is... Uh, detox uh, or uh, medical detoxification. And this will be a period of time that will be focused really deeply on the medical aspects of uh, of someone who is withdrawing from a substance their, their body has gained a physical dependence towards. Mm -hmm. um, these can be integrated into residential treatment facilities or they can be standalone facilities like New Waters is. Mm -hmm. uh, we really can't underscore like how important a detoxification is. And Justin, you know, from your Absolutely. own personal experience yep. that, um, 
someone who is going through detox from something uh, like alcohol or benzodiazepines, it, they're not just uncomfortable. They have a real risk of dying. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a thing, right? I mean, you know, in um, a lot of times I think people think that they can just simply stop using a substance. Um, and sometimes a lot of people seek uh, this type of care and support on an outpatient basis. And uh, I think the reality around it is when the level of severity of that use, especially with certain substances, um, get to a certain point, um, it becomes a, a potential medical emergency sometimes if, says, if someone doesn't have the correct supervision and medical care on board to make sure that we can, that we can um, avoid those potential risks that surround that. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we provide um, uh, at the detox level of care at New Waters Recovery and other institutions like us is we're able to provide this sense of safety for the client and the client stakeholders, their family and loved ones, you know, Absolutely. and allow them to know that they are in a safe place being closely medically observed. Um, detox, uh, I think a lot of times people have the conception, and I will really put myself out there, like I had the conception that sure. I would go to detox, I would have a, a physical malady dealt with. I would have mm -hmm. a, a physical illness and a physical dependence removed, and then I would be able to go on about my life. Um, this is something that we've seen uh, empirically again and again is is not best practice for treatment. While mm -hmm. uh, a detox will deal with the physical dependence to a substance and hopefully make you comfortable and give you an introduction and solid clinical backing, uh, the real work is going to come afterwards. The real work is going to be dealing with the mental uh, the emotional coping uh, systems that you have built in place that have led you to use substances again and again. Um, and a detox is normally a week, and it's just not the right place to do that kind of therapeutic work. So residential level of treatment is the next level of care. Mm -hmm. um, this would be inpatient treatment. Um, you, There would be some medical staff certainly available. You'd see, uh, depending on the institution, of course, but you'd see psychiatrists, nurses would be present, et cetera. This could last anyway from 30, 60 to 90 days. And this is where you do the real work, both yourself and your family, in healing and learning coping skills from this disease. Mm -hmm. um, Justin, as someone who's worked in these kind of settings before as clinical director, I was wondering if you could you know, share with us a little bit also about the clinical aspects of, of that time frame specifically. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, Ryan, you know, it can be, you know, kind of traditionally we think about these residential levels of care of being like these 28 day programs or 30 day programs. But to your point, right, sometimes uh, it's important for someone to actually remain at that level for longer. Right. And I think nowadays, maybe in the past 10 to 15 years or so, we are seeing more of these kind of 90 day models of residential treatment emerge. And I think that's really based on a lot of research that's showing uh, for certain individuals, uh, longer periods of time in a controlled environment to where, you know, there's simply number one, no access to those substances. Uh, and then also just being able to do some deeper work with 24 hour support, uh, can really increase six, you know, chances of successful outcome in the, in the long term. Um, but a lot of that work would be, you know, group therapy, individual therapy, uh, integrating the family into that recovery process, providing education not only to the client but to the family. And again, being able to dive in and do some really deep, intensive work in, in, in an environment that is controlled, right, where someone doesn't have to necessarily worry about having a, uh, a pretty 
a pretty big emotional response to any particular clinical intervention, and then that being a trigger for them to fall back into old patterns or behavior or to isolate or to do something that's not going to necessarily be productive in moving them along um, that that continuum of recovery. Uh, doing that work in, a, in an environment to where if they do have a strong emotional response, there's clinical, there's medical staff, there's support staff to be there with them to encourage them to make sure that they're safe and that, to make sure that we keep them on that track of moving forward and not necessarily regressing, right? Uh, because I think a lot of this work that that has to happen uh, is, is deep. Um, it is difficult. Uh, and I think a lot of times, you know, for someone that's really struggling in those early stages of recovery, uh, our, our first response can be going backwards, right? Uh, kind of reverting, if you will, right? Uh, so that's why I think it is very important. It's very important that we give ourselves that opportunity to uh, get the help that we need in an environment that can support us until we are stable and ready enough to kind of step down to a lower level of care. Uh, and then we have the skills in place at that point to where we have a better chance of being able to navigate things in the in the real world, so to speak, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I, I know from my own personal recovery experience, like I really struggled with relapse for a period of time. And the mm -hmm. issue is that I would get... I would get one bad thought and I couldn't get it out of there and drugs and alcohol were easily available to right. me and that was it. Um, and I think something that I think um, maybe, uh, you know, people don't necessarily give enough credit to when they're looking at residential treatment is you get to spend 36 or 90 days without the temptation of alcohol and drugs. And it right. seems so basic, but we can't underscore how important that is Absolutely. because there are well-meaning people out there who spend 45 days doing fantastically. And on the 46th day, they get a bad idea that they just can't shake. They're not in a healthy environment and they yeah. can end up doing some real damage, you know? Absolutely. Um, uh, we've learned so much uh, about the treatment of addiction and and I think one of the things that I, I really love about um, working with with professionals like yourself is just that we really believe that people deserve the best level of care possible for Absolutely. themselves. Absolutely. Um, so residential provides not just that kind of physical removal from alcohol, the, the clinical work that you described. Um, it, it also provides a venue for families not only to get some rest and take a step back right. and uh, know that their loved one is in a safe place, but ideally engage in some of that family programming so that everyone can engage in this process of recovery, um, both separately and together. Absolutely. Um, Post-residential post treatment, um, you know, people will, will be discharged. There is, of course, you can't remain in an institution um, forever. You have to venture out into the world. So right. how do we best equip people to do that? Well, there are differing ways. Um, you know, it, it, even though it may not be done directly a lot of times in these treatment settings, people will take stock of, of recovery capital, the things, mm -hmm. that, the resources that you have to bear uh, that would seem to lean towards having a good outcome for long-term sobriety and recovery. Depending on someone's family situation, they might be recommended to move into a sober living situation, mm -hmm. especially for people who live alone, uh, people who don't have those uh, methods of accountability built into their domestic situation, or they're just not coming back to a healthy environment. Sober living can be an excellent environment, not only to have that accountability built in, but develop a community of recovery, which is a huge, huge uh, recovery capital supplier. Absolutely. Um, and this would usually be paired with um, continued group therapy, either at a PHP, a partial hospitalization program, which is a super scary word when I tell people that right, they're not right. familiar with it, but this is outpatient programming multiple days a week or an intensive outpatient. That's a lower level of care. Um, again, it would be outpatient group therapy that meets several times a week. Mm -hmm. And real quick, just to add a little bit more color there. Um, so that 
partial hospitalization or what we, you know, the acronym is PHP. Um, typically that is more days, right? More days, more clinical hours than an intensive outpatient or also what we call an IOP. Uh, and then for partial hospitalization, I believe the regulations are, I think it's 20 to 25 hours a week of clinical services. So typically you're seeing that as a, you know, a multi-day process. You're either there kind of Monday through Friday. Sometimes this can even be a seven day a week thing. Uh, but as you said, Ryan, that is on an outpatient basis, right? Whether you're living at home and you're coming in, you know, to the, you know, the facility or the building uh, for those services, or if you're living in a sober, sober home environment and then coming in, you are, you're coming in each day to a facility to receive those services and then essentially returning to the community in, in some way. Um, as to where intensive outpatient or IOP is usually about nine to 10 hours a week, um, so similar, right? You're in the community, you're either living at home or with a loved one or whatever that looks like, or living in a sober home and then coming in during uh, during the day to that that intensive outpatient program where you're receiving. And usually, you know, kind of a standard, the way that most people do this is it's about three days a week uh, and you usually do three, three hour groups, you know, kind of spread throughout the week. And then typically these places are also, whether you're at the partial hospitalization level of care or the intensive outpatient level of care, you're also doing some individual therapy and typically some continued family work as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Providing those kind of measures of support and uh, building a community around you uh, and just getting to know what this real life will be like uh, while hopefully with the coping skills that you've built up in your residential treatment and detox Mm -hmm. stay. Um, you know, the final kind of level of care, if it would, would be outpatient care, probably continuing to see an outpatient therapist, continuing to see a psychiatric provider for medication management, ideally one who is uh, specializes in addiction and definitely one who is aware of your substance use disorder right. um, and the history of it. And engaging in community support groups, whether it's 12-step uh, groups such as Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, uh, Dharma or Refuge Recovery or Smart Recovery, mm-hmm. just trying to find that independent um that independent community that can help support you. Um, you know, I, I realize, I mean, as we've talked about this, we've talked about highest level of medical acuity detox mm-hmm. and residential treatment, 30, 60 or 90 days, IOP or PHP, that's an additional mm-hmm. length of time. And then this final outpatient level, and I'm sure plenty of people who are new to treatment, uh, who are maybe exploring the idea of, of wondering uh, what they can do to separate substances from their lives are thinking like, how am I going to have the time right. to do this, right. you know? Um, and I was wondering if you had any any thoughts, Justin, because uh, I, I know that that's a common thing that people bring when they become overwhelmed by the amount of time they'll have to invest in it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think in, we could we could kind of speak to each level of that. So, you know, I think, you know, backing up to those those inpatient levels of care, which are detox and that residential treatment, which is, you know, underneath the detox level. Uh, it is true, right? You can't continue to work and, and do those things. Uh, and also be in a residential program. Uh, it's just those two things typically can't coexist. There are some programs out there, you know, for someone that may be a high-level executive or someone that doesn't have the luxury of being able to completely sever ties with their with their job temporarily so that they can get the help they need. There are some programs that are available that you can continue to have your electronics. You know, if you need to log in and take care of some payroll and things like that, those things do exist. We actually offer some of those things here at New Waters Recovery. If, if that is a true barrier for someone to be able to come in and get the help that they need, uh, there are programs available that can allow them to not work necessarily full time, but still be able to keep some touch 
with those responsibilities that they have in their life and get, you know, take care of those things. Um, so, so it would take, I think for most individuals, it would take a willingness and also the support, you know, from work and from family, uh, and friends to, to provide the space for that individual to, to step away, you know, for potentially months at a time to focus on their health. Right. Uh, and I'd like to, compare this to, because we do view addiction as a, as a, as a neurological disease, right? A neurological mm-hmm. disorder. And, and I think a lot of times people struggle with that idea of kind of pulling away from work and other family and life responsibilities to focus on their treatment. But I think it, it's, it's just very interesting to me that if someone was, was, uh, given a potentially terminal diagnosis, a medical diagnosis, um, and told that they were going to need to do that same thing to pull out of work and other life responsibilities to focus on that treatment. Uh, it's just interesting to me how people are usually more likely to, to find the ways, um, to get that, that freedom, if you will, so that they can focus on that medical disease, but not so much for the addiction and the co-occurring mental health. Uh, but I would say that it is just as important, right? If for us to live a, uh, you know, a life that's hopefully full of freedom and peace and happiness uh, and, and just a healthy lifestyle. Um, in order for us to accomplish that, sometimes it is just crucial for us to find a way to let people around us, whether that's our employers or our families, support us in a way that we can step away and we can truly focus on our, on our, on our health, right? Absolutely. Um, and I think also when we step down to that, that partial hospitalization, that intensive outpatient level of care, um, it's, it's a lot of time. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, anywhere from 10 to 25 hours a week. That is a lot of time. Uh, I think there is a way for someone to maybe kind of return to work or still be able to engage in some of those family and life responsibilities. Uh, but being realistic about the fact that it is not going to look the same as if we were not engaged in treatment. Uh, so it is important, again, to allow the people around us to support us, give us the space that we need to where we can continue to focus on our treatment. But then also, I think, as part of of stepping back into to life uh, and finding ways to cope with those, maybe also taking on some of those life responsibilities or maybe even taking on some of that work again, but being realistic that it's going to probably have to be more of a part-time type schedule, right? Absolutely. I think it's really at the at the intensive outpatient level, there's more freedom. You're doing 10 hours a week of clinical services. I think most people find at that level of care, they usually can re-engage in work uh, and other responsibilities that they need to attend to. Uh, but it's not until you get to that true outpatient level where we're talking, you know, one to five, if you will, hours of clinical services a week. At that point, I think most people are able to find they're able to, you know, work full-time jobs, you know, attend to their families and their life responsibilities uh, and also be able to continue that treatment that's so necessary for them. Absolutely. I mean, it just strikes me that really at the end of the day, uh, what we're dealing with is is battling, an, it, it's an uphill battle against stigma and the deep yes. shame and guilt that accompanies this. And just like you said, if someone had bone cancer, right? you know, no one's weighing the days, no one's saying, I'll go in for seven days and then come back out, but I'm not doing the 30-day program. <laughs> right. Like, it's just not going to happen. And, and there's a real um, a real um, sad and sick belief at the core of this is yeah. that people with addiction do not deserve the best treatment possible. It's unfortunate, but it's Pe- true. People with addiction uh, deserve to kind of suffer through things and, uh, and just kind of soldier on regardless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can't tell you, and I know you have this experience as well. Right. When people are ready for help, 
regardless of what they've gone through before, you see employers, you see family members, they stand up with open arms to help this person mm -hmm. on to the next level of Absolutely. care. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, we, when you're deeply involved with someone, when you see someone suffering, you you want them to get better regardless of the nature of the malady. Absolutely. So it's it's sad when people um have this kind of sense of, sh of shame and guilt that is blocking them from, from accessing that care. Um, you know, isn't your life worth engaging in this process, regardless of the amount of time, regardless if it was a year, you know? Um, isn't it worth uh, doing this so that you can be fully present for others in your life and, and enjoy the fruits of it? Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, but it's just it's it's just an unfortunate thing, you know, and it's something that, you know, I know I had to personally struggle with and, and many others on our staff had to as well. Absolutely. Um, I, oh, please go ahead. I was, I was going to say, I think another thing, thing that's important for us to touch on is, uh, you know, and Ryan, I think you've probably seen a lot of this as well is, you know, when someone does get to a place, um, where they're ready to take that step into treatment, uh, you know, similar to what you were just saying, I think there's a lot of stigma. I think number one, it takes a lot of courage, uh, to be willing to take that step and just even to entertain the idea of, of seeking treatment takes a lot of courage, I think. Um, but I think something that a lot of people struggle with is this idea of like, I can just put forth maybe some minimal effort or that I can find this kind of one, you know, magical thing that I can do and I can spend a minimal, a minimal amount of time on myself and my treatment and just kind of, you know, quote unquote, cure the situation. And then I can just get back to living my life and everything mm -hmm. should be, should be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I wonder, Ryan, if maybe you could speak to uh, the importance, I think, that we see, especially working in this profession, of, you know, having a solid assessment and then following through with this continuum of care in a way that you can truly get the treatment that we need. Any oh, thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at the end of the day, what we're talking about uh, is just best practice, right? right? We're talking about meta studies that have been um, done on people all across the country suffering mm -hmm. from this disease and and what is the number one best track of treatment? You know, right. I, I tell people in my office all the time, you know, if you had cancer, I'm not going to recommend the third best chemotherapy. I'm not recommending right. you the second best course of treatment. I'm going to recommend to you the best to fight against a fatal malady. Mm -hmm. I think it's a essential, you know, an essential part of the recovery process. Uh, well, a befuddling part of the recovery process is there was a point in time in which I had become unwittingly my own worst enemy. Mm. And that was in ways that I knew very directly and ways that I did not know very directly, especially surrounding my fears and anxieties. And these fears and anxieties over issues real or imagined um, would often, the strain of those would lead me back to a bottle or a bag, you know? Right. Um, and so I think I needed a period of threshing time. I needed a period of time where I really needed to not make so many decisions for a little while. Yeah. Because sometimes my decisions were good in those periods of time where I was struggling to maintain sobriety. And sometimes they completely befuddlingly wound me back up at the bottom. Um, mm. So uh, just surrendering a little bit and um, allowing others to guide you. Uh, to some areas that might be to guide you out of a blind spot is, is just really, really important. In all yeah. other areas of our life, we're going to seek medical professionals constantly. And yet for some reason, when it comes to behavioral health and mental health, there's just so much resistance there, you know? That's true. Um, uh, yeah, I think following that continuum of care is just essential. Yeah, absolutely. And and to your point, I think that there's just a, a profound amount of research uh, and also I think just professional experience that we see these things live out in real time uh, that, you know, we want to take this serious. 
we don't want to continue to bounce in and out of treatment or to struggle with this disease uh, for any longer than is necessary, right? Uh, and I, I think it's important that when someone develops the, the courage and the willingness to take that step, that, that's, you know, so important step of, of seeking treatment for their self, it is important to just hit it with everything they have, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, I, I think we're, we're seeing so much research show uh, that if we start at the most appropriate level of care, whether that be detox, residential, um, that we start at that appropriate level of care and that we follow the recommendations from the professionals involved and slowly step down through those levels of care to make sure that we are receiving not only just in you know a time frame, uh, but levels of intensity to make sure that we are truly getting all of the treatment that we need. Um, it just uh, literally is going to greatly impact the the chances of being able to be successful in our recovery moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah. There's nothing more heartbreaking, and I've seen this multiple times, where we have someone in my office, we have a suggested level of care, for whatever reason they're resistant, right? Mm-hmm. And they end up leaving. And then we get the call three weeks later, yeah. a month later, five weeks later, and they're sitting right back in my office again. Right. You know, we've had experiences like that recently. And, mm-hmm. and it, you know, to cut through that kind of the level of sadness and shame and guilt that they talk to me, and there's no, there's no judgment here. You know what I mean? Right. We've all made plenty of, plenty of mistakes in the past, but I just wish I could erase the pain and the damage that they'd done in those months prior. Right. Um, and more often than not, they do end up engaging in the appropriate level of care, but they've, 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 it's cost a lot, both uh, resource-wise and personally in the interim. Absolutely. So, Ryan, what would be one thing if there was a family member or, uh, you know, a potential identified client that was that was listening or watching this this episode, what would be like one thing that you would have them take away from all of this? Yeah, I think one thing uh, that I would... I would really want them to take away from it would be to know that it's all right to ask for help. And I think there's a really deep belief and it sounds really cliche and like it would, you know, come on the underside of a yogurt container or something like that. But uh, that 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 it's okay to ask for help. And if you can't speak openly and transparently about something to somebody, you got to find someone to speak that stuff to. And it's probably because there's a lot of shame and guilt surrounding that issue. So to be candid with someone, ideally a professional about where you're at. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a, a great deal of relief that can come from that, and they can guide you on a course towards getting some real, um, some real healing and wholeness. You know, absolutely. Well said, Ryan. Well said. Um, I guess in in closing, I would say, especially again, you know, to anybody that's listening to this or watching, uh, that is a family member that is maybe looking into treatment options for a loved one, or maybe you're someone that is struggling with addiction yourself. And you're just trying to find out what's the first step. What do I do? Um, I think, you know, my biggest recommendation is the best place to start is a conversation with a professional, right? Uh, And here at New Waters Recovery, I mean, we have those conversations on a daily basis. Um, uh, All you have to do is just call us and we will, free of charge, I mean, we will have a conversation with you. We'll we'll, We'll gather some history on what's been going on and we'll try to help navigate whether that's with us or with another provider that is going to meet your needs, uh, I think that is the best step. Um, And that's not only with us. I think any other high-quality program around, whether that's in the state of North Carolina or across the country or the world for that matter, that is always the best, the first best step. And to Ryan, to your point, I think having the the willingness and the courage to to ask for help um, 
can give you the opportunity to get a professional on the phone or, you know, on an internet chat or whatever that is to be able to just start that conversation about like, Hey, you know, openly and honestly, this is what's going on with me and, and let someone provide that guidance about what that, that first step can look like. And really, in my opinion, I mean, taking that first step and being willing can open the doors to, to so many other things to where we just don't have to struggle with this stuff for the rest of our life, you know? Absolutely. I, it, it's, it's another cliche, but it's always been very powerful to me. You know, someone told me one time, listen, you never have to drink ever, ever again. Mm. And it's, it's, it's so simple and such a basic fact, but if you are struggling with this or you have a loved one who is struggling with this, they never have to do it ever, ever again. And they have the chance to put this thing in the ground, you know? Um, it's just going to take some willingness and, and, uh, and some, some real open-mindedness um, and willing to go to some places, some scary places, both as a family and, and as an individual. But it's the best, you know, I say this all the time, right? It is the best time in the history of man to have addiction issues. Mm. And if you're in America, you're in the best possible country to receive really quality services. So if you're struggling with this or thinking about it, just take advantage while you can, you know? You don't have to live in that confusing morass of gross emotional weight of I've engaged in this compulsive behavior that I don't like. You don't have to live in that again and again and again anymore, you know? Absolutely. Completely agree. Well, Ryan, I, I appreciate you hanging out with me and taking some time to discuss this topic. Um, I know we both feel very passionately about this specifically and, uh, uh, hopefully anybody that's watching or listening, hopefully everybody's learned a little something from this. And again, if there's any way that we can help, uh, that is literally what we love to do, right? So we'd love to help any way that we can. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Justin. Yeah.